welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. What's up, Knock On Nation? This Knock On Podcast brought to you by you. That's right. All of you freaks out there that support what we're doing, that's who pays for the podcast. You guys do. So guess what? This podcast is going to be a bunch of your questions. It's four in the morning. Just giving you a little warning. Voice may be hoarse, but I'm warming it up ever so softly and delicately with the knocked and loaded coffee brought to you by black rifle coffee company i love this stuff i'm not just saying that i actually do and my wife her name's shazzy fresh she's a bit of a coffee snob and she had her doubts and now guess what our freaking super fancy pants coffee maker and all these Swiss made coffee cap skills they're not even being used anymore because she's just French pressing in fact she's built some some very amazing muscles just from how much she's pressing down on that French press she's pretty much getting jacked like someone doing push ups all the time which is not me I don't do push ups I do push pulls I push and I pull and then I shoot. That's what I do. Uh, it's been a pretty cool week. Been shooting my nards off. I've got right here in front of me in this extremely uh, messy archery layer from which I'm podcasting right now because it's so early. I have this Hoyt bow, aka the Hulk. And my God, is this thing driving tax. It's shooting so good. And I don't know. People ask me all the time, what is my practice routine? Um, So right now, I'm really going to focus on getting prepared for the Total Archery Challenge. Um, So I'm in training mode. Uh, Training mode consists of I'm shooting and... My workouts are actually second to my shooting. So my shooting uh, normally comes during the morning for sure. Um, If I can't do it in the morning, then I'll do it in the evenings and I'll work out really early. That way I've got good good strength, stability, and stamina. i got enough rest time between the two um, because I think the two are really, really important. You have to do both. A lot of people that struggle with being able to, for example, um, keep their shoulders in good positions and keep from collapsing with like the silverback or even with the two smooth. Um, a lot of that boils down to just your actual physical build. And this was something that when I first started shooting competitively um, and I started to to really focus more on this 
for my stamina throughout the long days, um, a lot of the foreign coaches actually saw, um, you know, muscle mass and having extra muscle as almost a restriction because they felt like it was too restricting for um, for archers to have, you know, muscle and limited flexibility. And until I started to convince them that you actually have the ability to have a lot of flexibility and still have mass as well and convince them on the fact that it's actually more useful muscle when it has full flexibility versus when it doesn't, um, things have changed a lot now and now they actually see that as a benefit and I credit it for most of what I've achieved in archery I guess if you want to say I've achieved anything but um, I just really feel like if I'm not practicing a lot my strength pulls me through um, more so than anything if I want to practice a lot my strength pulls me through so it's uh, I mean it works two ways if I want to get after it, I have the ability to do that. And if I don't have the time to do that, my strength, um, and normally just from the sheer number of arrows I've shot through the past, it'll pull me through and I'll, I'll do all right. Um, there's a difference between doing all right and doing competition-worthy um, shots. So... Right now I'm putting, uh, I started on Memorial Day, I built, I kind of had a bunch of bows that I was working on for other people, and on Memorial Day I finally decided to build the Hulk. I did not build it on camera. Um, to be honest, that's why I hadn't uh, built this bow um, in so long, simply because I was trying to wait until I had someone here to film and would also have the time to actually put this together um, and kind of put the video together, not just film, but then you got to put the whole video together and you got to make it look nice. So I was waiting for that and then I just got to the point where I'm like, okay, that's not going to happen. Don't have the time right now. Um, and I apologize about that. I'm burning a hundred logs in the fire right now but i'm doing that for all of you out there so you have to hopefully appreciate i'm trying to do uh, a lot of things to make a lot of people happy rather than just make all the people that want to see a bow video happy or vice versa uh but anyway i, I built this pro force uh for those of you wondering my target bows i normally shoot right around 60 pounds so this is just over 60 pounds, it's about 62 pounds is where it finished up. And I'm actually shooting um, for this particular bow um, a Easton uh, Superdrive 23 and it's in a 325 spine. I think with a hundred I think I ended up with 120 in the front uh, with a PM 2.0 so that's a low profile very low profile two inch vein um in a six fletch and and i also uh changed the bushings out to be able to shoot a g knock and it is freaking pounding i'm shooting it as a limb driven system which is allowing me uh i've got an elevate rest on there and 
I'm shooting it with the limb driven setup, um, not the launcher blade, which is common for target archers. I'm shooting the limb driven simply because I was very, very curious on this super small six fletch um, vein profile, mainly because this bow is going to be more so for 3D, probably more so than I shouldn't have said I was getting ready for the total archery challenge. I don't know if this is the bow I'll take to that total archery challenge. Probably not, just because of the diameter of the arrow. I kind of want to go out there with my hunting bow and see what I can do uh, just with my hunting bow with no scope and short stabilizer. But we'll see. Um, we'll see what I end up going with. The main thing is I'm getting these reps in. Uh, I shot. My goal on Monday was I don't know. I just wanted to shoot. Uh, I switched over to the silverback. So um, I'm going to be shooting the silverback and also the two smooth. Chances are I'll probably end up shooting the two smooth once I go to the total archery challenge. I'll probably shoot the hinge in the tournament. Um, that's still up for debate, but that's probably what will happen. Um, or the silverback, either one, I guess. It'll be one of those two. Um, just because I'm going to dedicate the summer to uh, to tension releases. I'm going to shoot those all the way through until I get to um, hunting season, and then I'll decide what the hell I want to do. Um, but my rule of thumb is if I'm shooting good, I shoot. If I'm not shooting good, I try to power through. Power through is actually a term... Uh, I think it's licensed by Joe Rogan, Joe Rogan Incorporated. Uh, we were actually at a dinner one time, and I forgot what the hell we were talking about, but him and Harry were on a subject, and then he just said something like, I don't know, power through that bitch or something. And however he said it, of course, it was funny. And now, every time any of us have a little drop of whining, uh we have to pull out the power through bitch so power through that's what you do if you're shooting bad you try to power through uh however there's a fine line between joe rogan powering through and john dudley not messing yourself up for archery for the rest of your life uh which normally that's on the subject of target panic which i'll i only say that once in one day that way i don't catch it um so if you're shooting bad and you just continue to shoot and continue to shoot, all you're doing is reinforcing bad habits. So that's why I'm a firm believer in when you're shooting good, shoot. When you're shooting bad, don't. And um, I was shooting good on Monday, so I ended up shooting 600 arrows. I got to 500, and then I thought, forget how that happened. I got to 500, and I was pretty content there. And I think um, my buddy Brendan Hansen, who's from down at Archery Country, um, he's also been on the podcast, super awesome dude. Um, he was telling me that he was grilling out on Memorial Day, having some friends over. Uh, my buddies from Archery Country and my buddy Ben O'Brien were coming over for whatever the heck he cooked up. And then he just said, I thought you'd at least get 600 in, so... I went back out and shot another 100 at night so that I would get the 600. Then 
uh, it felt so freaking good because the bow was shooting good and I actually felt like I really found my stroke with that silverback that I um, went out the next morning right away at first light uh, 6 a.m. or whatever it was and just started shooting and and just pretty much went out there and told myself I want 10 rows of 10 ticks so each tick um, represents an end of six arrows so that would give me 600 and it goes pretty fast people ask um, how I get that number of arrows in so if you're shooting good and you're wanting to really ramp up numbers of arrows and you're wanting to really reinforce especially when you're shooting good obviously if you start breaking down you're making turd shots uh back off for a while you know don't be afraid to set your bow down and come back and shoot another 50 arrows in an hour if you have that ability um but for me i just shot and if i got a little bit tired i went and cracked open a a kill cliff and suck that down and uh took a few pictures would make a post on social media take a little break and then get after it again but what i do is uh when i'm trying to get number volume number uh into my practice sessions i'll just take higher numbers of arrows out which is different for me because normally if I'm just out shooting my hunting bow and stuff, I'll shoot like three arrows at a time, three and pull, three and pull, three and pull. Um, but what I do is I'll shoot anywhere from six to 12 at a time. And back when I shot even higher numbers of arrows up to a thousand a day, um, what I would do is I would actually just on my, on my target field, I would have two targets at 90 meters, one on each side um, of the field. So literally the targets were facing one another. So what I would do is I would shoot 12 arrows, walk down, pull, shoot 12 arrows back, walk down, pull, shoot 12 arrows. Obviously, you know, you only need, you know, you're, you're getting up to 100 arrows really fast. Um, and then obviously if you want to shorten the distance, um, you know, if you're limited on time, you just shorten the distance, just make sure you have like multiple spots up or multiple targets. So that's how you do it. Just shoot more arrows at one time, but just for safety protocol, I'm going to tell you, uh, make sure you're shooting at multiple spots. I normally, I actually was shooting some multiple normally i'll shoot two arrows at each of my 3d targets um i put i set up my 3d range and for those of you listening who are wondering if you're 3d guys um not doing any unknown yardage just doing known yardage i don't have any unknown yardage uh tournaments so i'm not really worried about that um so i'm just shooting at known yardages and all i'm doing is and this is important too because when you're a fixed pin hunter like i am so my 20 30 40 50 are are pins that are always set um it's equally important to know what each of those pins do and especially at the in-between yardages which is why you need to practice um with a fixed pin sight at varying yardages but the other thing is when you go back to a single pin sight like what i do the likelihood of me skipping an arrow 
um, off the back of a target or dumping one into the grass or shooting a tree behind my target it's pretty high because um, I continually have brain farts every day and one of those is not moving my sight it's probably it's probably the most common mistake I make in archery is just totally spacing out and forgetting to move my sight so this high repetition it's actually in the way that I'm doing it two arrows at 30 two arrows at 50 two arrows at 20 two and then pull two arrows at 30 two arrows at 40 two arrows at 50 just varying these back back and forth doing two at a time if i get over 60 if i shoot 60 or further i'll shoot three arrows at a time um so i might shoot three at 70 three at 80 and um i'm just really trying to reinforce the subconscious to understand moving the sight you know made your shot move your sight made your shot move your sight otherwise i'm going to go out to the total archery challenge and end up freaking shooting a hundred yarder for about 23 yards from the last target and look like a total idiot which is pretty possible i mean i'll just warn everyone you don't want to be one of the targets is probably going to get arrows skipped around. That's just how I roll. So uh, you're forewarned. Uh, wear helmets and uh, body armor to the total archery challenge because I'm going. Mm. Hopefully, I don't get my. I didn't get my morning business on before this podcast, and I'm just letting you know this knocked and loaded. Like literally, you're. You're going to be loaded, ready to roll. If you're into getting your morning business rolling, then that's a lot of times that's what this helps with. Um, all right, so here's what I did. I took a bunch of screenshots for some questions that you all have. I also made a post this morning and said that I would welcome some of your questions. So the first thing I have to do though is I have to answer this question that Sharon gave me because it got sent into the store and by the way if you send me questions through the knock on store not all of them they forward them to me but they also go into a queue so don't get mad at the knock on team if you send a question in to me and it doesn't get answered because again I don't want to be a jerk. I just, it just literally comes down to time. If someone knows how to clone me, then let me know because I'm going to take one. JD 2.0 is going for just Q&As and he'll be working 40 hours a week nonstop for the rest of his life answering questions that come in. Then JD 3.0 is going to be doing all these bow reviews that you want. Then JD 4.0 is going to be getting strings going. And JD 5.0 is going to be doing everything else that I want to do. Ideas that I have, but I have to get these other ones done first. So for right now, JD 1.0 is going to be answering this question Sharon sent me because although a lot of times she'll say hey I've someone sent the question in she'll read it to me and I'll say well just send it to me every now and then I say oh that's a good one actually I don't think I've talked about that so she flagged it and it's from 
Mississippi boy. Um, George is actually his name. That's kind of the start of his email is Mississippi boy, which I'm a Mississippi boy too. So hopefully you're from the cool part of Mississippi where, uh, which is, I kind of think, the west side. I like to roll west side Mississippi, Cleveland, Natchez, all that good stuff. Anything along the river, anything along the Mississippi Delta, cottonmouths, frog gigging, wood ducks, crappie jigging, all that good stuff. Deer, hogs, turkeys, that's what, that's what the west side rolls with, but that's where I'm from. So here's the question. Uh, my question pertains to D-loops. I shoot a compound bow with the release and no D-loop. Some of my buddies look at me weird, but I shoot better than them. Oh, you're talking smack now, son. They're like, what? Everyone who knows George is saying, that's that's bullshit right there. He does not. I believe you, though. So anyway, he says, so I just don't pay attention. I made the decision not to because I was under the impression that it would shorten my arrow or in turn shorten my draw length or um, my total weight with my arrow or less energy that I'm launching at the arrow. What are the pros and cons of D-loops and no D-loops with accuracy, energy, and string wear? That's a good question. Um, Because I don't think I've talked about that because, well, because I think you're still the only person that doesn't shoot a D-loop, George. Uh, For crying out loud. Unless you like to replace your serving about every two weeks which if you shoot a lot and if you were shooting 600 arrows a day like I did that's what you would be doing and it sucks it sucks because um, you start to lose um, your actual knock position because eventually you'll wear through that serving it'll start to slide Um, and hey we've all been there dude I've shot that way I've built bows that way but and they and they are accurate no question but there's a lot more that goes into it one is because you're shooting your release directly under the arrow a lot of times um, when people go to let down they actually can push the arrow off the string uh, with a release hooked directly under the arrow like that Um, I think we've all been there been at full draw on a buck aiming down we don't get our shot we go to let down and you gotta like somehow freaking grab your arrow with your two fingers that are in front of the grip so that your arrow doesn't fall down meanwhile you're also trying to not cut your fingers off because you got a broadhead on um that's not fun and the other thing is what you have to do in order to prevent that is you actually have to space your knocking points out so that there isn't a lot of knock pinch. So if you have two tied knocks and they're spaced apart pretty good, it actually won't do that. Um, But then the problem is really understanding knock pinch perfectly and for a lot of people understanding that when you pull back and you have two tied knock sets like that that are spaced apart 
so that when your release is underneath the bottom one and you pull back, that gap has to close up just enough to where it's not pinching the knock, but it's also not still leaving a gap. Because if you pull back and there is still a gap, then the arrow has the ability to go up or down um, depending on the size of the gap, and that is definitely going to affect high and low impact. Now when it comes to a D-loop, you can make a D-loop a half inch long and totally be fine with it. So what does a half inch do? Um, well, a half inch on one of these, like, well, for example, a half inch on one of the new knock-on axis is only going to be 5.35 grains. So the energy that you're talking about is so minimal. You could literally cut your arrow, um, you know, if you have that D loop and you did shorten your draw length enough so that the D loop would essentially get you back to, to square one, um, you have a couple options. One, you don't have to cut your arrow off at all. You just leave it and have a little bit more overhang. Two, if you did cut it off, it's five grains, dude, on average. So it's pretty minimal. Um, it's de it's nothing you're going to see. Like, you're not going to be able to go shoot a ballistic gel and say, oh, I'll see what that five grains did? Like, that's not going to happen. Um, the other thing is f f a half of an inch on most bows is probably about four feet per second which four feet per second as well um, is just not even going to be noticeable i would be willing to bet that you're actually losing if you have brass knocks clamped on your string like real old school like every one of us did in the 80s um some pros even into the 90s uh then I would say you're probably losing that much speed just in your brass knocks. If you have a peep tube uh, to keep your peep straight, you're losing more speed with that than you are with a half inch of draw length. Um, just so much of that stuff that factors in. If you go to a D loop, don't shoot a, like an, a metal one or an aluminum one. It's just too much weight. Just get one tied in there. You're going to love it. You're going to be in the 2018 era, and you're going to, George, you're going to be excited, dude, because when your loop wears off from the jaws of that release, you're going to be able to just cut the loop off, put a new one on. Your knock points are still good. You don't lose your tune. It's going to be awesome. The other thing, too, is a lot of people back when they shot um, a release directly under the knocks, a lot of people would put a little bit of super glue on the serving right there just to help wear but um, it's actually recommended um, by the fiber companies to not do that because the newer style super glues actually dry out um, parts of the fiber and will actually cause it to break down and crack so sometimes the string um, when people would shear their strings and they would just break right in the middle a lot of people thought that the release was just cutting 
um, which in fact that super glue was just kind of rotting rotting out the string and it would end up just busting there um, so D loops dude you're gonna like it it's you got to do it you got to get there um, while I'm on that subject just talking about loop material um, there's lots of different ones and different ones and different brands will wear differently and a lot of that comes down to how tightly the material is actually braided and also the makeup of the internal cord and how the internal cord in the D loop is actually spun. Um, you know, sometimes when they're done right, you're not going to have near the wear and tear on a D loop as you will um, if it's not or if the material's poor. Um, we actually sell um, a loop, five feet of loop material on the website, knockonarchery.com. Uh, that helps that makes the podcast brought to you by you guys um and it's really good the certain colors actually have a different a slightly different stiffness um the green is really stiff but i actually have right here in front of me actually i have two different spools um some spools are wound tighter than others there's been times where I'll get one spool and it's super rigid and the other one bends a little bit. Um, and a lot of times I'll send them back. I really like a rigid loop. There's a fine line there though. Um, years ago, uh, Winner's Choice actually made their own D-loop material because um, they wanted one that didn't wear out. So the material was spun so damn tight that you could almost hold like, I don't know, you could... You could stretch out like two feet of this loop material and you could hold it straight out like a wire. But the problem was it was really hard to get the knots tight um, where you finish your loop off. So I actually don't like like it when it's too tight. Um, I think the um, the poly braided loop material that, that I have is great um, and works really well. And it also uh, still works really well with a hinge. Certain hinge releases, um, especially the older style models, this does not include the too smooth, um, the type of loop material you would use would actually have a lot to do with how you could feel the movement of that hinge. Um, whereas with this hook that's on the too smooth, um, it actually doesn't allow that D-loop material to slip around that hook as it's moving. So you get a much better feel and you're able to shoot a poly loop material instead of having to go to like, um, well, there's one called D-Braid, which is stands for Dudley Braid. Uh, BCY sells it. Um, I don't sell it uh, on our website simply because... I really like the poly, um, the number 24 poly uh, material that we have, and it works really well with the too smooth still. Um, but again, sometimes you can buy loop material, and believe me, some shops buy, you know, some shops will buy spools and they won't buy a good brand. It'll just be a brand that's cheap, and 
the core of the you'll end up getting like fraying on the outside of the loop and obviously when you start to see that you need to replace it before you know you end up breaking a loop um, but or if the internal cord which is normally white starts to show through obviously that's a pretty important time to replace that so uh, yeah that's what we're doing so just to switch things up oh goodness oh gosh uh, alright I've got some questions and what I'm doing is I am I actually just flipped it so the comments that are in uh, this feed I flipped them around so the newest ones are the ones I'm going to read first that way if you were a little late to the post you're actually moving up in line uh, but first I've got just a few questions I'm going to read um, from Instagram that I promised people I'd deal with um, Let's see. So this is from Jesse underscore Monson. He's asking, um, why do you think accuracy goes down with a larger peep? So the reason accuracy goes down with any type of larger peep is anytime you start to enlarge that peep, you have more room for error in how you're framing the front sight. So... A lot of target archers, you know, they're not going to run. What well, what I don't like about running some of these larger scopes, like a 42 millimeter scope, is that my target peep has to be big enough to where I can frame that housing with that peep. And the problem is, the bigger the peep, the bigger your error for left and right. The smaller that hole, the more precise your left and right and your up and down alignment has to be the downside to once you get into like a micro peep which i actually changed the peep sight on this proforce bow um, i went out with one size peep and after i was shooting just a little bit i realized this is too small what was happening was it was choking down a little bit on my light so i wasn't able to gather much light through my right eye and I found that my left eye was really trying to take over uh, the image because it was simply gathering more light and a lot of people that struggle with double images um, it could be the fact that you're trying to shoot too small of a peep sight um, and that's factoring out if you're not left eye dominant and a right handed shooter so the smaller the peep the tighter your accuracy, that's going to be the truth. Um, obviously, in a hunting situation, again, the smaller the peep, the less light you're going to allow in there. So there's a fine line. I think for targets, target archery, I normally shoot the, the, um, the Fletcher tree peep. I think I shoot the small. The micro is normally just too small unless... I'm shooting in really good conditions and for some reason I have my sight very far in front of me which is not common at all. Um, mine's normally a little bit closer. Um, so, and the other thing too is, um, 
you kind of have to factor in how far the peep is away from your eye. So if your string angle on your bow is very sharp and that peep is quite a ways away from your eye, um, you know, I'm trying to think. A lot of the bows that are people are shooting right now, you don't have to worry about this as much. It was mainly back in the days where there were shorter bows with really short brace heights to where the string angles were really sharp and you almost had to either have the string way far back on your face or tip your head forward to the string. And in those cases, the peep sight was further from your eye and it makes it harder for alignment or super accurate alignment. Um, so kind of find that middle ground. Um, find the peep that allows you to be able to be in a hunting blind and still be able to pull back and see through your peep sight without having to open a window just so you can gather enough light um, but also uh, don't make it too small to where you're struggling to see through it um, I think I shoot the small is the size that I shoot for target archery um, but you may have to go up in size um, if you're shooting a 35 millimeter housing or the 42 millimeter housing Um, so hope that helps you out, Jesse. Next question. Okay. Um, so this is from Jake underscore Gardner underscore. Um, it's pretty much just saying he's looking at Easton Hex arrows as bow shop changes draw length, um, and he feels better, but he doesn't know um, what his total poundage in is but he wants to run 75 grains of brass in the front with a hundred grain broadhead and i'm assuming he really wants high foc front of center and he said so would the 260 spine be the way to go um he said i plan on cutting my arrows down um to tune them and he also plans on running a four a four fletch max stealth um which he thinks is going to help break down the spine. So, well, there's a couple things there. One, if you feel like, um, if you feel like all you want is FOC, then yeah, you're going to have to size up. You're going to have to go to a stiffer spine in order to allow that heavier brass in the front to make a change. Um, with the 50 grain brass, it changes about half a spine size on the charts. Um, up to a, with the 75 grain, you could go up to a full spine difference. So yeah, based on what you're shooting now, you have a lot of uncertainties in this email. Um, you don't know exactly what your poundage is, so that doesn't help me at all. Um, and you, here's the thing: when the shop tells you what your draw length is. There's two things to that. One, um, if you're shooting, if you're shooting a bow like um, a Hoyt or a Matthews, your draw length is probably pretty good um, for what it's actually written. I would say Hoyt is the best. That's my opinion. When it comes to bows out of the box and it being a 29-inch bow and me pulling it back, Hoyt is always the closest. Um, it used to be that way with Matthews. Now they're kind of fudging a little bit if I'm honest um, because I've actually built several in the last few days for people um, but and the reason for that is because the ATA standards is actually kind of 
um, it's not very clear at what manufacturer it is clear it's written but it, the margin is stupid okay so as consumers we're the ones getting screwed here because of the fact that the ATA has a very wide plus or minus margin that a manufacturer is allowed to send a bow out and still be able to categorize it as a certain draw length. This mainly came from this whole speed thing and it actually started it started years ago when Kevin Struthers was still at Bowtech because Bowtech was advertising speeds at that time that were not accurate and the reason they weren't accurate is because the draw lengths weren't accurate. So there was a big race in the late 90s, early 2000s towards speed and a lot of people were really racing to try to get over that 330 mark at the time and Bowtech came out with a bow that was about 12 or 15 feet per second faster than anything else on the market and we ended up um, speeds are all checked uh, according to the ATA um, at that time it might have been the AMO actually it wasn't the ATA then um, but the speed uh, kind of the baseline is a 30 inch draw length with a 70 pound bow and an arrow that's five grains per pound so it'd be 350 grains um, of an arrow out of a 30 inch bow at 70 pounds well the plus and minus margin for draw length was at that time unspecified so the botex were coming out of the box at 31 and a quarter inches and it, even though it was a 30 inch bow and so they would send these out to dealers in a 30 inch draw and they would the dealers would get them and rip them through the chronograph and sure as shit they're shooting 10 feet per second 12 feet per second faster than any other bow on the market well yeah it's simple math one inch of draw length equals 10 feet per second right so um it got to the point where other companies in the industry kind of said, listen, we need clarity on this because when you take um, a PSE, a Hoyt, a Matthews, a Bowtech, um, and you draw them back, and at the time, Bear Jennings, that was about it back at that time, um, and you pull them all back, everyone's 30-inch bow out of a box is pulling a different draw length. And... You know, there wasn't really clarification on what the scale needed to be. Like, there was no, you know, what needs to happen, in my opinion, is if the ATA, you know, wants to certify speeds, they almost need to have one certifi certifier that actually takes these bows, pulls them back, makes sure that they actually pull 30 inches on the nuts, maybe plus or minus, I could see a quarter inch. Um, and then also the speed, you know, check them on one scale. They all pull 70 pounds on the same scale. They all pull 30 inches on the same draw board. They all go through the same chronograph. That's the true fair way to do it for consumers. Um, the reality is the test labs that I've been in, which has been in multiple factories, this is the truth. You know, these factories may order six or 10 chronographs and whichever chronograph is reading the highest speeds that's going to be the one that they use to document their speed tests the other thing too was 
what even to this day, um, unless it's changed and I don't know, but the plus or minus on draw length is three quarters of an inch is what they ended up letting it to. So even at that, you're still talking a six to seven foot per second variance. Um, the other thing too that they didn't factor in was uh, there wasn't ever a minimum on string, uh, either string diameter or string makeup. So the other thing that happened during this whole like speed war was companies would take a bow and they would, you know, their turbo model would be with say an 18 strand string, whereas every other string coming out of the factories with 24. So the consumers are the ones getting screwed, and it's still it's still that way now. Um, there's definitely companies that are better than others. I would definitely say that. Um, uh, Hoyt Matthews, I've both been at. I've been at both of those places, and I think that there's due diligence done there. I know at the time um, when I still worked at Matthews, uh, Matt was super picky about that, and then it just got to the point where he actually just, I think he just gave up and said, okay, I'm the only one doing it to the line. Exactly. I'm the only one. So I'm going to start making my 30-inch bows the same length as whoever's making it the shortest. And, um, you know, so that's kind of how it happened. And what's important about that is you have to know what your true draw length is. If your shop's telling you it's a 29-inch, well, if you back your limbs out and you're not shooting the full maxed-out weight then your draw length is longer. As soon as you start backing your limbs out, your draw length lengthens because as you flatten the limbs, they come back, the string comes back, you increase your draw length. So if you've got a 70-pound bow at 30 inches and you back it down to 60 pounds, well, that thing's probably drawn close to 31 by the time you back it all the way down 10 pounds. So you really need to have them pull that bow back. If you're really wanting to know arrows and you're that precise about it, you need to know exactly what that arrow, what that bow is pulling for draw length. The other thing you need to know is who cares about your draw length? What is the length of your arrow? I had um, someone asking me just the other day, which arrow does he need to have for the new knock-on arrows? Which, by the way, I have a completely new tune chart that is made up and comprised once the arrows are here and available which Easton told me that they're still waiting on some labels they expect them anytime and they told me that once they get them um, they're going to need about four weeks to get this first batch done so it's looking like um it's looking now like mid-July, if I'm honest with you. And believe me, I've, I'm tired of, tired of promises, everyone. I know I told you in the last podcast. I'm sorry, but there's not much I can do. I feel like I'm whipping a dead horse every time I'm saying, you know, what the heck? You told me May. Now it's June. Now it's July. I mean, listen, we're just, we're just a little nation. They're listening, which is good, but they're not doing backflips yet we'll get there um so there will be a new chart i'll do a new video explaining to everyone out there the video will be available by the time you can buy shavs on the website 
and this video will show you a chart it will show you how I build them it'll show you everything I'm literally gonna walk you through the process I've got a whole new chart that's um, that's done up now so you can select your arrows based off what insert weight you're gonna choose to put in whether it's 50 or 75 um, but one of the things you have to know other than your true draw length is what is your arrow length because people say well hey I got a 29 inch 70 pound bow okay well are you shooting a freak arrow rest where and you're cutting it down so that the arrow is behind your hand because even if you have a 30 inch bow now you got a 27 inch arrow so that's you know the length of the arrow is what matters the most because the length of that arrow determines how stiff or how you know how stiff or how weak it is based on the same amount of pressure a shorter arrow is going to flex less with equal amount of pressure versus one that's longer um, so that's why there's so many different spines so you really need to know what your arrow length is don't just know what your draw length is because again if you think you have a 29 inch bow but you're shooting a 30 uh, you know an old Bowtech that's drawn 31 and a quarter then that's a whole new can of worms and then yeah because it's that long your arrow probably is 30 inches so know your arrow length and go from there um, I can tell you if all you're worried about at all Jake is FOC on this question that I originally read off then a hex arrow could be a better option for you um, because it's very it's a very light shaft and yeah you can put a very heavy insert in the front I shot hexes for a while um, it's an extremely straight arrow and it's a good arrow the reason I went away from it is because I actually just found that my penetration was less with that arrow um, just because the overall weight of the arrow was just starting to get too light for me I've tested arrows I mean there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds sitting in here around me I've shot them all I shoot tons I fletch thousands a year and I picked the two, my two favorite hunting arrows is what I picked to uh, to label, and the axis with 50 grains of brass in the front instead of you wanting to go with 75 on that hex, I personally think could be a better option for you. Um, but that's just my opinion. I appreciate the question though, and I hope that helps you. Uh, let's see. Next question here is from Ben Ben J211. So he's asking on the Elevate 2.0, um, the rest now has a single bolt versus the old one that had two bolts. Um, I'm having trouble keeping the arrow in the groove as I draw back. Seems like it's sliding off when I con when I have contact with the bolt. So there's a couple things. If you set up your initial arrow rest, so if you can imagine um, you've got your knock-on elevate rest, it's in the up position, and you're setting up your bow for the very, very first time. If you click your knocking point or your knock on the string, and then you have your arrow rest in the up position, but you actually bring that arrow rest 
down fairly close to the riser when you set your knock height then what happens is when you lower that arrow rest down the arrow is actually coming down because it's so low to the riser it can come down and touch the top of that little screw um, however when you first click your um, your arrow on the string what you want to do is you'll want to raise that arrow up to where that the bottom of your arrow shaft is more in line with the upper half or at the top edge of your burger button hole which is where the the hole that your arrow rest screws onto your bow um, so if the bottom of your shaft is in line with the top edge of that hole what that does is when you lower the rest the rest comes down further and your arrow is angled down more it's not so flat to the riser so what will happen is the arrow will touch the front of your riser before it's touching the arrow rest itself which is actually much better for clearance too um, and that's why the arrow if you have a Hoyt then it sits in the cradle perfectly and the shelf is already quiet um, if you have a Matthews then it's got um, a Matthews, a PSE, an Elite, or a Bowtech. I'm looking at all of them over here in the corner. Um, you can use that little pad that comes with the arrow rest. You can stick it on the front, the front part of the riser so that your arrow is actually sitting in that little rubber cradle and it's touching the front of the riser. If you set your arrow, again, if you set your arrow to where your knock height is close to the shelf, which some target archers like to do, which I actually feel like is an old thought process. I don't think that even applies anymore because handle grip positions are so different in risers now than what they used to be. Um, I actually feel like your bow is going to hold better if you bring that knock position uh, to the position I'm telling you to do it at. Uh, but it, it'll work really slick. And the other thing too is, you know, don't forget the arrow rest comes with a arrow holder. That little holder, especially now, a big reason why, you know, and technically um, now, like the arrow, the flipper has two magnets instead of one so the so the the arrow holder you know is not going to flip forward when you shoot it wigged some people out seeing that although the arrow was long gone believe me i did a lot of slow motion photography by the time the centrifugal force of that arrow holder flipping back forward at your shot your arrow is almost seven feet in front of your bow um so it's definitely not touching at all but um I went ahead and put another magnet in that flipper uh, but you do have that air holder Rogan uses his all the time he just like his his is always sitting in there even when he practices so both of those should easily both of those things you know you might have to you may have to you know remove your knocks and loop and move your peep up again in the string and kind of reposition it and you might have to bring that arrow rest up but that is actually why when your arrow rest and i've actually got one right here taken out of a package 
So when you take your knock-on elevate out of the package, you'll notice that when the when the uh, the arrow rest is in the up position, the top edge of the whale tail is directly in line with the top edge of the bracket. Um, one thing that I actually do on mine, if you're setting up your own, um, so when you move your elevate rest up and down, um, there's actually a little set screw that touches a stop, which is what stops your rest to the up position height. Um, when you move your rest down, it touches the cage. When it goes up, there's a little set screw on the on a collar that actually touches a steel post. Well, on that little steel post that it's contacting in the up position, there's a small rubber sleet, like a little rubber hose, little clear piece of rubber hose that's around that steel post it's touching. Now that rubber piece is on there so that it's quieter, it deadens it when it goes in the up position. I actually remove that rubber piece off mine. Um, some people are like really super weirded out about how quiet their rest is. And believe me, I told you earlier, I'm from Mississippi where the deer are among the smartest on the planet. Um, I've killed deer there with it and I don't have a problem. If you draw back spastically and, you know, then yeah, you may slam it up hard enough to where it's going to make a noise. But if you draw your bow back in a fashion to where you actually aren't going to be detected, uh, then... I pull that little rubber piece off mine, that clear hosing. I take that off mine because I'm not worried about it needing to be that little bit extra quiet. And what that does is when you pull that off, um, it'll actually allow the rest to go up just a little bit more and it'll raise it up just a little bit higher. And that's actually how I set mine up. If you're a DIY home guy, that'll make sense to you. If not, then it's whatever your shop's doing for you which could be what what happened with you but hopefully that helps you out dude um okay so next question here is from jk pain 43 um he's saying podcast question care to talk care to talk about the difference between the asa and the ibo um and some of the things that you like or dislike about both so yeah it's funny to say um but you know the rules have changed a lot back when i competed <clears throat> the main difference was the location of the 12 ring um back when i first started shooting ibo there was no 12 it was just it was the big 10 8 or 5 the smaller rings didn't count the smaller rings were only for the asa which allowed the 12 you know now the asa has 12 rings they've got multiple 12 rings they've got 14 rings I don't know. I mean, I'm probably not the right person to ask if I'm honest. Like, I really like, I, I actually really like the format of, like, the Reading shoot um, much more than the ASA or the IBO because I really like, I like the Kill Zone 1 being in, being a you know the circles are proportional according to the distance which i think is important for people 
that are learning archery and people that aren't going to freak out trying to aim at a 12 ring the size of a quarter at 50 or 60 yards which is impossible to see it and then what happens is people end up shooting like a 10,000s fiber because they're so they're wanting to be able to actually see the 12 ring or aim at it at a longer distance but then what happens is you know you start to I don't know I'm just not a big fan of that so to speak if I had to shoot them now I don't know I'd have to see the courses my favorite was always based on the courses I liked the ones that had the harder courses I never was a big fan of the ASA when I shot them um, mainly because the ASA was always shooting in lanes a lot of the times the lanes were they were flat it wasn't my favorite um, I just did it I, my favorite really was uh, the NABH, which was the Cabela's Tour. And the Cabela's Tour actually had um, center 12s. And they also, so the, the, the center 12 ring, which is, you know, I think the 11 ring for the IBO now, it was the center 12 scoring and... Um, the distances were maxed out and they really did their maximum was 50 and they really did a good job of making a course um technically difficult whereas the asa you know you could almost just look over two lanes over and see the next target and you could pretty much step it off if you wanted to um, I don't know it just got a little boring down and back down and back down and back like I don't know my brain was my brain's like, I guess, just not programmed for that type of shooting. So, um, I I really liked the Cabela's tour because again, it was center twelves. So you're always aiming for the center of the actual heart, you know, or the heart zone. Um, and then the courses were technical. You know, they they were they seemed a lot more realistic. Second would be the IBO. Um, I enjoyed the IBO because it had longer shots. Um, it was a little bit of a pain back then, the way that the courses were shot, because it wasn't shotgun starts. So everybody started on target one, so there'd be like a two-hour wait just to get to your first target, um, which kind of added extra pressure too. It You know, they're all different. They give you different pressures. You know, when you got... 500 people staring there watching you shoot your very first arrow and you've been practically falling asleep waiting two hours to shoot you know it added in a different element on the mental side like you had to have your mental game there because once you finally stepped up to the stake you really needed to be ready to go because already you're you're there and what was cool back then was um you know the scoring was was 1085 and so a perfect score was a 400 um at the time and maybe it's still the case i think the only person to ever shoot a 400 was um actually my mentor uh randy chapel um randy shot a 400 um which was the first ever shot at an ibo um and cleaned it um the best i ever shot was 496s or 396s and 394s and those typically came on um 
the hardest of courses, which was at the time the Nelsonville, Ohio shoot was the hardest of the IBO triple crowns. Um, and I just really, I always excelled there. And I think a lot of that was just because it was very technical up and downhill. People had to, you're walking uphill, you're walking downhill, and you were also having to aim up and down. And that started to break down a lot of the people that weren't in as good a shape. Um, so I don't know. I liked those. ASA was never my forte. Uh, I've never really liked, I don't like the fact that a 14 ring is up in the, up in an area that's actually a non-ethical area to shoot an animal. Um, I just think that's stupid. I think that's a big reason why it doesn't do well on TV as well. You know, you're going to go out and shoot something high in the top of the back, you know, above the liver and the spine to shoot a, to score the best possible score. I think that's dumb. I think they would have been better off making a 14 ring that was literally not much bigger than the diameter of the arrow in the absolute dead center of a heart valve on the animal. It would be better off doing that to where if someone shot a 14, they literally couldn't be more than an arrow widths off. Um, but to put the 14 up, you know, I can see why they're doing it the way they are. They're trying to make it to where if you miss the 14 ring, then you're shooting an 8 or a 5, so you're being penalized by going for it. But I just really feel like if people are watching watching an accuracy-based sport, then, you know, imagine if they, uh, they had a rifle thing to where, you know, you scored zero to ten based on your bullseye and then they you know they put some extra point off in the middle of nowhere to where it almost seemed unethical to shoot at it like that's what they're doing with the 14 ring and i don't agree with it so i like the reading format bigger circles they're actual dots to where people can and they spray paint them on in the correct position so people can actually practice aiming at the right location and have an aiming dot and the dots proportional to their pin at each distance so as their pin looks bigger on the target the dot will look bigger too um, so that's my favorites all right got through my questions that i promised people so now i'm actually just now getting to all of your questions on this post which is going to kind of suck for for all of you i'm going to try to blow through these There's 35 already see this is what happens 35 i mean average that out if i typically flap my gums for four minutes on a subject times 35 well now i don't even get to practice today that's what ends up happening um and you've got over an hour podcast right now. It's like a 20-minute bonus based on the original length this podcast was supposed to be. The only reason I go longer is because of Rogan. I feel like if I don't do an hour now, I'm just being a punk. And my bladder is capable of three hours since his podcast, so I can go longer. Um, all right, so let's... 
let's see here. I'm just I'm having to actually proofread these before I read them out loud, just in case any of you write something stupid or funny. Funny to me, but stupid in the world of uh, mainstream media that'll end up jack slapping me for saying something that isn't politically correct. Um, okay, so. This is a legit question from Arch Rival Bowhunter, uh, saying I've been feeling like I've been rushing my shots lately. What do you recommend to slow down the shot process? Slow down, dude. Slow down. Um, a lot of times, counting in your head is one way that can do it. You know, I've seen people where their shot process is going too fast. You can tell they're rushing. Uh, same thing, people, there's sometimes people are too slow. They're just there, and you're like, holy cow, dude, I'm out of breath just watching you shoot. Uh, you know, once you've let off that safety and you're aiming, you know, count through your head. Just, you know, 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, 1,000, 5, 1,000. I mean, by the time you get past 7, 1,000, you're done. Um, you know, I really like anywhere from three to six seconds once i'm committed into the shot um it doesn't matter when that timing is when you really get good at something your timing becomes the same naturally so what you want to do is you want to know what is the speed of my pull and this is based on the tension of your release the amount of travel in your hinge or the amount of pressure on your thumb the amount of preload that you have against the wall of your cam or the amount of preload that you have with your thumb on the release. So, you know, count out loud and just tell yourself, okay, 10 seconds, that's too much. Let's, you know, I want to build more, I want to have more pressure and you can start pulling, pulling. All of a sudden you realize, oh, that's too fast. Okay, that's too fast. And you'll just get to the point where it happens naturally and you won't have to be counting anymore. a lot of times when I'm counting to myself, when I start my indoor season, I'll count out loud to myself, or I'll, I'm, it's not out loud, but it's in my mind, I'm literally saying 1, 1,000, 2, 1,000, 3, 1,000, 4, and what's actually nice about that is you're thinking, your conscious mind is thinking about something you're having to count, and it actually is a combative for target panic, so you're not actually worrying about uh, my pins on the target. My pins on the target. My pins on the target. You kind of just get it there, and you just say, "Okay, I'm gonna pull through the shot. I'm trusting my pin. Let my pin float. Let my pin float, and just count out loud and go through your motion." So, hopefully, that helps you, dude. Uh, John Kohler saying, "Do you ever spine index?" So, what he's talking about is when you take an arrow. Um, the, there's different ways that different arrows are built uh, depending on how they're made whether it's a piece of aluminum that's rolled over and then there's a seam sewn or whether there's pull-treated carbon or wrapped carbon but no matter how you do it there's normally um, and even when depending on how that arrow goes into a sander and it's spun around and you know sanded down um, to get your proper spine um there's most of the time i mean i've seen arrows where it's almost impossible to find it but let's just say a lot of times there's going to be one place in that arrow where it's slightly thicker or stiffer or where the seam is put together um to where you know it's 
it has a different strength. You can imagine if you have a steel pipe um, and you know, or a piece of steel and you roll it into a circle and then you have to weld that seam. A lot of times if if you're a good welder, like my buddy Matt Newton down in Oklahoma, Texas area, um, then the weld should be stronger than the material. So uh, in that case, that spine is actually going to be a little stiffer than there. So spine indexing, um, a lot of people used to do it by floating arrows. Um, if you're good, you can actually see where it is on aluminum arrows. Um, you can just find it. A lot of people would actually fletch their cock vein directly on that high spine. This matters a lot more to to people that are shooting like older traditional arrows, especially like a wood arrow, arrows that aren't centrifugal um, in their spine all the way around the radius of the shaft. Um, then yeah, what happens is if an arrow is fletched to where the stiffest part of the spine, say, is facing up, which when you shoot a compound bow, your your the way your arrow actually paradoxes, the way it flexes with a compound bow, it flexes up and down like as you shoot the tail of the arrow will bend down the center of the shaft bends up and then the front of the arrow is bending down that's how it's happening and um as that is happening uh where that stiffest spine of the arrow is can have an effect on accuracy so if you ever have um and this could be there could be two things that cause this but if you ever have times where one arrow is just always grouping out of the rest of your your other arrows, a lot of times you can take the knock on the end of the arrow and just turn it so that you are almost turning it so that you have a different cock vein. And what you're doing is you're essentially by turning the knock, you're turning that arrow to where possibly that thicker spine is going to be facing a different direction um, and it might be affected differently as the bow shot. Now if you have arrows that are always grouping outside of the group and you index your knock you know three notches and it doesn't change then obviously that's just a junky arrow that has really poor tolerances um, which is also highly possible but if you do want to go the extra mile and figure this out, all you have to do is take your arrow shafts um, and you float them in water. Then you have to take a, a little paint marker, which just gets to be a pain in the ass because then you end up getting it wet and it doesn't work. But you literally just mark the top of the arrow that's facing out of the water. And so the heaviest part of the arrow will, fl will go down so the lightest part will be up so once you have that mark um, you know that pretty much gives you a reference of uh, where you want to put your cock vein um, you either put it on the mark or directly opposite the mark but just do them all the same um, personally I'm a big advocate of shooting arrows that are high in quality and a big reason why I'm making the knock-on arrows be such a match grade selection process is because I don't want you guys to have to jack with all that. Uh, these arrows, you take them out, you spin them, 
and they freaking spin like a top. The weights are all bang on and they're good to go. You're literally getting the cream of the crop. So that's taking a lot of that homework out of the equation for you and really that's what you want more than anything um, is doing that. So hopefully that helps you out, dude. You can index if you want. Certainly if you have a flyer in your group, rotating your knock, um, you know, rotating it um, 120 degrees, shooting it, see if you if it pulls that arrow back, if it doesn't, you know, and it might plot to a different area all of a sudden on the target, then move it another 120 degrees, see if you can bring it back to everybody else. Um, <laughs> okay, Dan the Man. You're saying, what are we drinking this summer? I'm pretty much on... Um, by the way, the other night I posted... Um, I found this cold brew coffee wine. It wasn't that good. I got asked about it. Um, I thought I'd pair that with my Axis. And I didn't really know if it was like morning or night. I was like, I could taste coffee. But I knew I was having wine. It got a little weird. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not a fan of that. Sorry, Apothic. You can, I'm glad it was a limited run. I think it's going to die. Uh, but here's what I drink. This is, I'm going to answer this because I take you seriously, Dan the man. And I know you're getting after it. He's, he's changed his life, people, by being committed to getting up early, working out, um, I do stalk a lot of you out there when I recognize you guys. I, f I check you guys out, make sure you're staying on track. He gets up every morning, gets motivated, busts his butt in the gym, takes his daughter there sometimes even. Uh, his, I'm pretty sure his son enlisted. Yep, yep. They did their Murph on Memorial. These guys are awesome. Um... Dan LeSage is his name, by the way. But Dan the Man LeSage is his handle, in case you want to follow him, because he's a knock-on nation guy. Um, so I'm going to be drinking this. Knocked and loaded coffee in the morning, which is actually, it's actually the second thing I drink. So the first thing that I drink every morning, I get up and I actually drink this isn't the best tasting i'm just going to tell everyone that um but there's two things one when i get up in the morning i actually really like i've always liked having an alpha brain in the morning um but here um in probably the last two months i've actually added some like himalayan sea salt in with my morning my very like my first glass of fluid in the morning so i actually have an alpha brain just because I kind of want to get my brain woke up. Um, I'll have an Alpha Brain Instant with um, some Himalayan sea salt in it, and I have it at room temperature. I'll normally have a big glass. I'll have a 30-ounce uh, Yeti tumbler, and I'll just drink that sucker down uh, first thing in the morning to hydrate. And then I actually start um, heating up my morning coffee, and I'll drink that normally after my hot tub. I'll get up, I'll hot tub, warm up my body, and then I'll normally do a bunch of stretching. 
and then once I'm done stretching I'll come in and I'll actually make my coffee just so you know I brew my coffee with a French press and I'll boil the water and then I actually turn the pot off and I'll let the I don't pour boiling water over my bean over my grinds um, that's just me makes it a little more bitter so I actually let it just cool off for just a little while and then I'll pour um, and I'll actually put half a cup of beans in my French press. I'll pour in that pretty much it's hot, super hot water. I'll pour that on just enough to cover the beans and I'll let them bloom for about a minute and then I'll fill up the rest of the French press and I'll stir it and then I'll go ahead and let it steep for about two minutes and then that's what you hear here. That's my morning cup of coffee. Um, so I'll have that. And then what I'll do is um, I'll actually go right into my practice for the morning. And I'll practice for a while. And then I'll get into my workouts. So for my workout potion, here's what it is. Um, my workout potion is I take a 30-ounce Yeti. Um, and I'm not just name dropping. I'm actually being precise and telling you this i take a 30 ounce um yeti like rambler thing i don't know the ones that have the lids on because i normally take it either to the gym or take it on my bike ride or take it on my run and anyway inside of that i'll put in um 30 ounces of water i'll put in um two scoops of creatine one scoop of glutamine and then there's actually a um, on it's got um, a brand new electrolyte, which is actually um, really good. I'm looking it up right now. They had been sold out. They had been sold out of it. I'm seeing if it's back in stock. But um, anyway, uh, on it did they do have a just a pure um, monohydrate creatine. Um, that is literally a straight pure creatine there's no junk in it so i actually i like to drink this throughout my workout um but i'll put in um i'll put in one full scoop of the glutamine which is an amino acid the creatine and then there's they have a mineral electrolyte um hydration mix i'll actually put all three of those one scoop of all three of those into my 30 ounce uh, water and that's what i drink during my workout um so i mean it's great because i don't feel like i mean i swell it's been sweating like a mofo uh, but it's been really really good and then uh as soon as i'm done with that i'll then I pretty much start in on kill cliffs, and I, I'm gonna admit I do have a kill cliff problem. Um, and now it's even worse because Sharon and Harry have a kill cliff problem too. So the four packs have now gone to flats um, for the household. So uh, I have kill cliffs. I like, I really like kill cliff. This what most people don't get about kill cliff is the shape of the can they think it's an energy drink it's not an energy drink it's actually a, a very very good recovery drink um so i'll have kill cliffs and um yeah if at the end of the night then you have options if you're drinking orange 
then you can mix in some Tito's. If you're drinking lime, you can mix in some tequila. Otherwise, yeah, that's just it. And what's funny is, uh, weirdly enough, it's not because I've planned it this way or because I'm trying to do anything, but um, just like with anything in life, Dan, if I'm honest with you, which I'm honest, um, for whatever reason, uh, I haven't been drinking that much lately. Um, sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. I go in, I go in spurts. Like there's, there's times where I, where I feel like, you know, I drink a lot. And probably the reason why I'm saying I don't, haven't drank much is because, I drank a lot in bear camp and well and I didn't drink I didn't actually drink much at all when I was in um, when I was in Lanai I drank a few times when we'd sit down um, but I never really drank to to get loopy and so I'm kind of for whatever reason kind of tapering that back one of the reasons though is because um, I'm actually really trying to monitor more now because I'm shooting a lot more in my workout. I'm working out really heavy. I shouldn't say not heavy weights, but I'm I'm putting my body through a lot right now with my workouts and with my practice. So I'm just really trying to get good sleep. Um, and if I drink, then anything with sugar, I don't react well to, which is why... Um, sugar keeps me up and sugar makes me gain weight. So I think, uh, just being able to limit that for me, especially red wine. I love red wine. I love cabs, but if I'm trying to sleep, I can't drink a bunch at night. Otherwise I end up waking up two hours after I go to sleep and I'm, and I'm done. Mm. All right. Next question. DS Bowser's 01 mental side of archery best way to strengthen it man that's a big question we should have started this podcast out with that question uh, because yeah that's uh, I don't know there's so many different aspects to that um, I think a big a big thing that really helps people on the mental side of archery whether it's in a tournament situation or whether it's um i guess whether it's in a hunting situation as well i think how much you're actually prepared for something has a big impact on your mental preparedness for it and the reality is even though people have self-images that are sometimes skewed, like sometimes people think they're better looking than they are, sometimes, you know, and I'm just talking like physical build. Some people, you know, like guys that walk around with like invisible lat syndrome, you know, obviously they, they feel like they have lats, but they don't. Um, I think a lot of that comes from just, you know, you kind of build this false... Um, sense on yourself and I think when you're really practicing and you're really putting in time you actually have confidence that'll carry over I think you're honest with yourself when it comes to not being prepared and I think more than anything 
when people know deep down they've cut corners, that's when the mental game starts to break down the most. So I think one of the easiest ways to be strong that way is to make dang sure that you are prepared. And that's a big reason why I'm getting after it right now. I mean, listen, I would love I would love to spend my two to three hours a day um, doing other stuff. But the reality is I've got ten people that are counting on me to, to work with them while I'm in Salt Lake City for this Cabela's slash Easton event which will end at the Total Archery Challenge. So I really want to be in good shooting form. I want to be able to shoot well in front of them. I want to be able to to look strong. I mean, for me, doing this is, this is my performance. I mean, when I go somewhere like this, it's a performance for me. So I'm rehearsing and I'm dedicating to it. And the reality is when I don't do that, and I show up to something like that, my confidence, regardless of what I've done in the past, is definitely lower. Um, you know, you just you have more confidence when you do it, and you also a big part of the mental game is playing into things that give you confidence in what you're doing too. Obviously, if I went out and decided to start shooting a recurve for the next two months. I would probably not have very good confidence going in. Um, you know, the same is true when it comes to practice. Some people, you know, they might like shooting longer distances, but the truth is if it's windy, they go out and they're focusing on shooting longer distances. When you shoot longer distances, your shot process slows down just simply because you see more movement in the front sight. So then if you add wind in with that too, which I've watched people, you know, they'll say, yeah, I'll shoot my silverback at 80 yards tonight. I mean, I can watch them bl- blank bailing in the house with their silverback and their shot process is good. Things are firing. Things are great. Then all of a sudden they go and, you know, they're out there in the yard and they're trying to, they're trying to shoot a good group rather than just shooting good and everything changes and slows down so you really want to play into your wheelhouse of what builds confidence for you what allows you to reinforce all the positive things about your shooting and what are the things that are the negatives and maybe you know and that's why for me if it's windy i don't go and practice shooting lots of arrows or judging my groups i might go out and like if it's windy that might be days where i where i blank bail that might be days where you know i just kind of try to find a place where i'm shooting close just getting numbers i might go to an indoor range it's important to learn to shoot in those conditions but it's also important not to be not to develop a bad habit because you are shooting in those elements too Um, that's a big part of the mental game is just totally having confidence in what you can do and who you are. And that comes from being prepared, uh, being honed and sharpened and literally going into an event on cloud nine. That is the way that you want to go. When you go in, you know, I've had events where I go there and I have 
carrying three bows. I really don't know which freaking one I want to shoot. Um, all that stuff. That's the problem when when people are constantly changing things. That's why I say there's certain times of year that are great. If you're a hunter and you're wanting to to polish up, you know, if you're wanting to have a better mental game and a better mental picture going into hunting season, then right now is the time that's going to allow you to dedicate the effort to help build your confidence to where you're going to be solid come hunting season. If you try getting a silverback and getting ready for hunting season in August, well, I'm sorry. Can it help you? It yeah, it might it might help you in learning to not punch a trigger or trust being on the target if you're dedicated to it. However, it would have been really nice if you would have went there with full confidence, knowing dang good and well, you know, I have no problem doing this. Um, my buddy Ben O'Brien, I'm going to use him as an example. He might punch me in the face. Um, but, you know, when I went to Lanai with Ben, it was obvious to me that Ben had been busy at work he had no time to prepare he didn't have time as a bow hunter he didn't have time to prepare he you know he had a different release you know i could tell his gear wasn't together and the reality is i've said that about myself i went to alberta one year in a total disarray because i moved houses i literally said well all my shit's in that bow case I know it's ready to go. It's the same stuff that was in there in bear season. I'm I'm just gonna go, and I went. And then next thing you know, you know, I'm pulled back on a mule deer, and just totally whiff this thing at 40 yards, you know, in the wide open plain is dead. Like there's no reason, and I still don't even like. I don't even know if I was looking through my peep. I don't know. Because I hadn't done anything. And then next thing I know, as soon as that happened, my confidence was just in the toilet. And the reality is, no matter what front you put on, you're going to be honest with yourself when it comes to effort. And if you know that you haven't put in effort, then you know you're not really prepared for that. And when you know that, then and you're looking at a guy that's standing next to you that's confident and he's like just going through this freaking routine and he's looking like he's ice cold, uh, then that guy is going to intimidate you because deep down you're like, shit, he's totally ready for this. Damn it, I knew. I freaking didn't even shoot till last week. I didn't even put my dang sight tape on till last night. I mean, this sort of stuff plays with your mind. And if you want to have a strong mental game, rule number one is put in the effort and be prepared. And your mental game is going to be for sure at a better level than what it could be. Um, I'm just going to leave it at that because the mental side of any type of competition is a, it's a deep subject. I mean, there's obviously lots of talk on conscious, subconscious thoughts, different types of, you know, depending on your behavioral um, attributes, you know, what type of 
person you are, ego, task, uh, those all play into different ways of training or possibly what can help you be on your best mental game. Um, I just really feel like confidence, man, if I could pick one thing that can just help people with, and this is about life. This isn't just about competition. This isn't just about hunting. This is about life. When you, when you put in effort to knowing what you do and you know your craft or you put in effort to your trade, then you will carry confidence. I've had this same talk with employees. I'm like, you know, they'll have things where like, well, I just don't get these questions. And that's like, okay, well, hey, dude, go home and listen to the podcast. All these questions are, you know, the questions people email in, these are questions that I've talked about. Do some homework. Go listen to some podcasts. You know, instead of jamming the metallic on the way home, listen to a few podcasts. Learn a few of these things. You know, people say, oh, you know, I'd really love to, you know, really want to start getting into video editing. Well, freaking sit down. Start YouTube and video editing. Start start investing in the right people. Go to someone like, you know, my buddy Caleb Copeland or listen to some of his podcasts and and put in some time and effort because you're going to be, you know, you're going to be more confident in your job if you put that in. I remember last year when uh, Rogan went on his elk hunt in Utah. He was being filmed and I know that, you know, Anyone that's being filmed, you always worry about. You always worry about representing bow hunting and, and eth- ethical shots. I mean, that sort of thing is always in people's the back of anybody's mind that has a conscience. Conscience, and I remember as soon as he shot that elk, um, and actually before we before he went there, um, you know, I kind of put out a little post um of talking about the golden triangle on an elk and i a lot of times when i make posts it's actually like little subliminal messages to friends of mine that will that i know that might call me and ask me about a certain subject or they might be worrying about something a lot of times i'll put that out there for everybody but i'm actually directing it at one person and i put that golden triangle out there um and i knew joe would see it and literally i got a video from joe and that elk was literally still on the ground uh with like bubbles coming out of the of the golden triangle and he's just like dude he's like the whole time i was just thinking about you know pulling through the shot and that golden triangle he's like that freaking arrow just went right i mean he was so he just i could tell his confidence in knowing like not thinking where should i aim like he he 100 percent had confidence in his shot he practices he practices a lot he prepares a lot and he had 100 percent confidence in where his pin needed to be and i could just tell like his his mental game was on on high alert it was a plus and you know when you have that when you're prepared and you have that confidence you just manifest 
you manifest greater things than what you're capable of and that's that's the truth of it and uh whatever you're preparing for ds bowser's 01 i wish you the best dude uh for sure definitely wish you the best um all right so next question here is um this is actually from aiden gonthier and he's asking what kinds of stretches or mobility work do you do to keep your shoulders and upper back flexible and healthy um, I'm actually going to be doing a video. Um, I want to do a video with, uh, I've got a, I've got a local office here, um, in my town. And if you're in the Des Moines area of Iowa, anywhere in the Des Moines area, um, one of my buddies, um, he's a buddy now, but, uh, he's got a, a practice that's called Drees. So it's Dries Family and Sport Chiropractic. Um, it's here in Indianola. And um, I'll just give you their number, by the way. The number is 515-961-5202. And Corey is who I use. He's an awesome dude. Works a lot with um, pro footballers as well as golfers. He'll go out and do things with the PGA and NFL, uh, different combines and stuff like that. Um, he does do chiropractic, which, um, I have, I've had my, I've had my doubts with chiropractic if I'm honest. And I've told him this, um, there's times where I've done it and it's not been good. And there's times where I've I feel like there's times where I've truly needed it and it's completely helped me. Like the other day, actually, when I shot so much, um, I was feeling a little bit of an impingement, and and I'm actually when I shoot that much, I get to the point where I start to lose some mobility, and you really need to have that worked out. And what's awesome about their office is they actually do um, dry needling, acupuncture, they do chiropractic, they also have like. Um, a deep tissue laser and then they also do massage and manipulation so I went in and uh, Corey was just awesome about actually just doing mobility movements um, which isn't something I can do on my own and just literally got my shoulder moving again because it was just so sore it was guarding itself um, the other thing that you can do that's actually really, really good, um, if there's some things that you just want to do at home. Um, so a steel mace is, it's a movement that if you watch someone that does a steel mace, and probably the best place that you can go to um, learn some of the steel mace movements um, is actually um, his Instagram is Eric E R I K Meland M E L L A N D, um, and his name is Isik, and he's from the Onnit Academy. And Isik actually teaches steel mace. Um, his code name is the Viking Ninja, which he is a Viking Ninja, and um, he 
does some of his movements are absolutely awesome for if you just watch some of his steel mace movements and i actually feel like you could do some of these same movements um i think you could almost do it with like i think you could probably do it with a sledgehammer if you wanted to i think you could um, you could easily buy a steel mace. I have three different steel maces. A lot of times I just use the lighter ones. And all I'm doing is going through these movements and it's just promoting shoulder socket rotation and shoulder movement. And it really changes things. And he also does some stuff with steel clubs, which I actually made a post on yesterday. Um, because... I really feel like if you want to build strength, the clubs are great for building strength. If you want to promote like mobility, then the steel mace is great. Just the way that you have to pivot it around your head and then also movements where you're pulling it and you're moving it through while holding on to like a fixed bar actually starts to open up and stretch out different things. Yoga is dynamite seriously if you have a ymca by you go to a 45 minute yoga class you won't you won't even believe how different your body will feel as an archer um just being able to balance some of that crap out and then the other thing is just simple hangs um just having something where you can jump up and grab a bar and just fully hang and elongate I do it every day. I actually have, um, now I have um, a rogue uh, rack in my out in my shop. So I'm able to go out and do my workouts here. But a lot of times I'll just go out and I'll just do, for five minutes, I'll just jump up and I'll hang. I won't hang for five minutes, but I'll jump up. I'll grab the bar. I'll just hang and kind of just move myself around a little bit just kind of twist around and just try to like make I'll, I'll literally my toes don't quite touch the floor but I'll like try to almost stretch myself out to where I can make my toes touch the floor and I can just feel like clicking and kind of stretching and I sometimes I can hear, hear some like some ribs or bones going back into place um just from hanging and hanging is such a great um thing to do for your shoulders and just moving around just a little bit um you'll feel a million times better but i do plan on um getting Corey to actually do a few little uh, films with me about some of the stuff that you guys can do at home because um, outside of you know the chiropractic which you know I've had ones that I've used that I didn't like I've had times where I've totally needed it um, but above and beyond that a good doctor he understands body function and movement so I kind of want to have him but I want to do it on like a video podcast um, which our new knock on headquarters that we'll be moving into fairly soon. Um, I'll actually have a video podcast studio there. So that's going to change things quite a bit. I want him to be there because I'd like for him to be able to be manipulating me, uh, while you can all see it. Uh, but if you want to go in, if you're close by, 
go check him out. Go see him. Tell him you need some shoulder mobility stuff, and he'll walk you through it. Um, let's see here. Matt Kripe is saying, when switching from a knock to it to my silverback, I found my shots routinely hit lower. My anchor feels the same. Um, what is the most likely uh, reason? A lot of the reason is because, and I did this, okay? So if you look, um, if you're listening to this podcast right away this morning, it'll probably still be on my Insta story. But I actually posted a picture on my Insta story from yesterday when I was shooting. I'm giving the middle finger to a chamois target. If you look, uh, two out of my three arrows are low. And I was I made the comment on that post, um, just when you think you're awesome, your silverback freaking shows you what's up. And so what happened was when I start to, when my elbow position starts to come down and my leverage is, my elbow's pulling down more than my elbow being up higher and coming allowing my hand to pull parallel with my shoulders and come back behind my face um, which is what you want you want your you want your rear forearm parallel to the front forearm so that elbow needs to be high enough like that and then as you're pulling and that release goes off you're able to follow that same trajectory and your release is literally staying the height of your face as you're coming back through when you start to get tired and you dip that elbow down a little bit and you're pulling down or if you're pulling with your fist or if you're pulling with your bicep you pull down and you're actually coming down out of your peep as you're pulling through your shot and your shots end up going low Um, so i had that same problem dude um, or I do. Uh, so main thing is learning how to properly uh, get that elbow up. Make sure you're doing a good job of framing that peep and your sight. And a lot of people, as they're pulling, they end up pulling themselves out of their peep sight. Their peep and scope um, eclipse starts to change as they're pulling through. And that's just all about you learning the directional path of your pull being able to do that properly um so hopefully that helps you out uh next thing here is uh arc obsessed morning dead what's morning dead what's the pros and cons of pin knocks as opposed to push in knocks um i thought i answered when the heck did i answer this i answered this on a live feed the other day sorry um so uh pin knocks I like pin knocks in some of the smaller shafts, like the X10s, uh, Pro Tours, uh, Navigators. I like the pin knock system. It's nice for when you're shooting a lot. You know, as a knock starts to get a little loose on your the on your serving itself, just to be able to pull it off, slide it back on, and get going again. Um, and then also the pin system on these very small diameter shafts it actually just adds in better strength so that you have a very rigid knock um and it's not flexing a lot because a a flexible knock on the back end of an arrow 
will definitely start to reduce accuracy so it'll keep that strong um, which is what you want um, I don't personally shoot the pin knocks on the really big arrows that's just me um, a G knock is about as small as I'll go they're obviously really nice for being able to do simple replacement pull them off slide them back in um, but you know obviously if you ding the back of that pin uh, you do need to take precaution and either you know file it smooth or you know I always carried extra pins I always carried a little bitty small hot melt uh, stick my lighter um, I had a little Leatherman in my quiver so when people would hit the back of my arrow um, if they sh if they ended up denting that pin at all I would just pull it out and just replace it um, but yeah it's definitely uh, it's definitely a good system especially on the arrows that I talked about X10s Pro Tours Pro Fields Navigators um, all those are the arrows that I would recommend for a pin system uh, let's see, Austin Bradford, should a new archer join an archery club to find advice in shooting tips or being self-taught at home? I'm curious about, uh, let's see here, I'm curious about it, and I'm at home mostly, but it's a slow process. So, yeah, it could definitely be a slow process. It's tough. It's really tough because you don't know necessarily, you know, I agree, you don't know if, what is a good club who's the right people to talk to at the club um i get it man all those are real life problems um so i think the best thing to do i mean i don't want to sound like a tool and say this but you're at the right place um there's a lot of poor information out there and i really try my best to to not have any <laughs> and if I for some reason make a mistake and say something dumb if if I'm shown otherwise I'll, I'll correct myself uh, but I'm really here doing this for all of you and I'm trying to give you the best archery information that there is period um, and I'm confident at that I know that because so many of the people that are also out there giving advice on social media or on YouTube, they're calling me or writing me to get information. And then, to be honest, many times um, they've just not even got it right when they get it out there, um, which is unfortunate. And, you know, I've, I've actually, there's been some people that just keep duplicating stuff I'm doing and they're doing it poorly, so I've just blocked them. Uh, because quite frankly, if they're going to rip me off then and not get it right at least, then I don't want them to rip me off. Um, this is a good place to start. Seriously, starting on the YouTube channel, and I've said it, I know I say it dang near every podcast, but if you go to the Knock on Archery YouTube channel, just you know, type in Archery 101 then go to archery 102 that literally shows you and you just start watching back some of those live feeds again i talked about putting in some extra time if you do that 
you're going to be way further ahead watching those live feeds on uh, you know how to f help with target panic how to shoot back tension um, archery 101 archery 102 you watch back through some of those live feeds or some of the ones that I did with with Bailey and Lucy um, you're going to learn so much uh, and you're going to learn the right way and then obviously just um, you know just picking up on the little tips and stuff that we talk about here on the podcast all this stuff is super important you're, you're not going to I mean, I don't know what area you're in. You might have a club that has an awesome archer. I mean, there's certainly great authorities in archery. I mean, there's people that I that I'll see and I really respect and and you know, and I and I really have I guess just have tremendous respect for and that they've done really good for archery and I know they know what they're talking about. Um, whether or not that person's in your club, I don't know. There's a lot of people there's a lot of people in clubs that that are like eager to be the know-it-all, and sometimes they know some, but they almost try to take it too far, um, and then they end up talking about something that they don't want. For your foundation and your base, starting with those YouTube videos, that is going to be a big plus for you. Um, let's see, Isaac Gallatin is asking. What is up with the new knock-on location in I-Town? That is the freaking question. Between newspapers calling us and people leaving notes on the doors and all that stuff. So, yes, um, I did decide to expand. Um, so we do have a brick-and-mortar location here in our town. But, honestly, that is not going to be open to the public um, it's going to be a headquarters that's going to pretty much have um, all of our e-commerce stuff as well as um, offices for Sharon and um, a pretty much a an editing suite and a podcasting studio so uh, that's what that's going to be for um, obviously my, my school is at a different location. Um, so, but right now it's not going to be open to public. We've debated whether we'll maybe do one day or something, um, or a ribbon cutting or something like that, but I don't think that's probably going to happen. Um, yeah, we've outgrown what we're doing. We need more space. Um, so that's what that's going to be. And we'll be in there pretty soon. Um, but yeah, it won't be a walk-in place. And no, I'm not doing an archery shop. Um, sorry. Uh, let's see. Matt.wink saying, are the new knock-on FMJs coming with blazer veins or AAE Max Stealth? So they're going to be... There's a couple things. One, you can't do Max Stealth veins in the original machines that pre-fletch like with blazers not to mention the pre-fletch arrows that come with blazers don't really have the angle that I particularly like um, so if we do pre-fletched arrows they will actually all be hand pre-fletched not out of a machine um, they'll be hand fletched hand wrapped 
Um, no different than if you hired custom ones, um, which I may or I'll probably end up doing. I haven't made that decision right now. I kind of just want to get some arrows for now. Um, but yeah, I debated offering, you know, I, I've debated doing limited color combinations and limited fletch configurations for people that did want to get custom ones done. I don't want to offer too many options because the main thing is as you ordered more or as you ordered, um, pretty much what will happen is um, the way I want to do it is each person as they order, um, their arrow would actually be designated to a certain jig and from here on out, that same jig would always be used for any additional orders that you would have that's how I would do it because honestly that's like for example when I work with someone custom like um, without I don't want to sound like I'm name dropping all the time I just say Joe because I know you guys recognize Rogan and I know he doesn't mind that me saying that there's others that I keep confidential but um, Joe's cool with it so like Joe has his own jig here um, which normally when I do a custom build for someone Part of that is I actually buy a jig, figure out the offset that I like for them, build it that way, and every single time Joe gets more arrows, it comes off Joe's jig. I've got literally a full cabinet full of jigs that are set for different people if I end up doing something different for them. Um, so essentially what I would do if I started doing pre-fletched arrows is I would have certain jigs um, with the arrow builders that I'd have to hire to do it to my specifications and then those jigs would literally be designated for that now whether or not I decide to um, send your arrows out with a little piece of paper that says these were built on jig 15 um, that would be uh, that would essentially be up to me but I want to make sure every arrow is exactly the same um, having multiple jigs is sometimes questionable if that's true. That's how I always did it for my competitive career. That's how I do it for my own hunting stuff. I want literally no different than a very high-end ballistic uh, ammunition builder. It would be the same thing. Mm. So it won't be blazers, that I can tell you. It'll definitely be max stealth. Um, I'll probably start out for sure doing the three inch max stealths first, um, just because that's going to be the most popular and then go from there. Um, let's see, JC Heretic, any recommendations for entry level compound or recurve bows? Um, okay. So I'm limited on what I can say here. Um, I can tell you that I do still plan to do uh, the build for this Hoyt um, entry-level bow. I shouldn't say it's an entry-level bow, um, but it's a it's a entry-priced bow, which is good. Um, so, but the other thing is, um, I can't really say. I just know there's something else coming not too far, not too long from now that could also be a really good option for you people that are in the middle that's all i can say might get in trouble for that so there's a reason why i haven't like 
put that build out there yet for that bow. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but there'll be something really good coming, especially here um, in another month or so. Uh, let's see, next question here is from Diego Boaholic saying, getting my nine-year-old uh, boy a new bow, either a Hoyt Clash or a Mission Menace. Um, what are your thoughts on these pros and cons? Main thing is going to be um, you should really take each of those bows and set them to the draw length that you know your son's going to be at and make sure he's able to have the poundage that he wants and um, once you've set that poundage you know make sure one of the things that I really like to check with the younger people is making sure that a bow that you pick has good string tension once you actually get it at that um, one of the things that decreases accuracy pretty fast is when you start to have to back the bows off so much that the string gets really floppy um, and the problem with that is when it's loose like that the arrow will pull the string forward quite a ways before it before the knock clicks off the string so just go into the sh most shops have both of those especially if you have a Hoyt Matthews dealer um, and try both and just see which one they like better I mean that's the other thing too which one fits your kids hand like don't even just say hold this one pull this one back hold this one pull this one back S you know set them apples to apples and then see which one they like and that's going to be the better one for you for sure um let's see let's see croc de rock <laughs> says haven't gone to sleep yet number 22 and trying to move up thoughts on that arrow gun I've seen what don't know what that means uh, he must be I don't know I don't know what that means sorry delete everyone's time um, let's see here <laughs> uh, Tyler Scott Stallings saying going to Lanai for first spot in stock any pointers on getting some Axis deer uh, yeah if it's windy go if it's dead calm good luck <laughs> move slow um, get in there before light move slow and uh, just realize there's always tons of eyeballs. Uh, you know, I I really liked utilizing as much of the terrain as possible, staying in the low spots, um, staying in the highest cover as I'm moving around, and you know, don't be afraid to uh, you know once it starts to get light, kind of let things start moving around a little bit before you get too aggressive and and moving. Uh, because a lot of times you start to move one way and the whole group just starts moving a different direction uh, on their natural path for bedding so um, that would be my advice and just realize there's always eyeballs um, I would hunt if you could just bring some really good flat bottom tennis shoes um, definitely knee pads um, because you're going to be crawling around a lot 
Um, and I think just, you know, make sure you're kind of going light. Be careful. You know, they can hear super well. Um, and just always move with your head up, too. That's one thing. A lot of people, they, you know, they're looking down so much trying to navigate their direction of path that they don't realize that you really have to you have to be locked on to the animal's heads and their eyeballs just as much as you are where you're stepping because if you're looking down and they pick their head up it's game over like you have to maintain eye contact and almost use your peripheral vision uh, to worry about your your direction of navigation uh so that's my my tips and if you find my release pouch out there with three noctuits in it send it back to me please i'm depressed i lost my old faithful 20 year old release pouch and all my releases um let's see here if my point of impact is perfect with my noctuit but it creeps to the right four to six inches with the two smooth what do you think is going on with my form um so it could be a couple things one of them is probably going to be just the angle like a lot of people with a hinge release they lay the release flatter uh, meaning more horizontal because of the way it pivots and then with with a thumb release a lot of people invert the release upright more um, and so that different torque pressure on the D loop will change um, impact. So I think it could definitely be that. Um, or a lot of times, too, when people are shooting a hinge, they aren't necessarily pulling through as good. They're just kind of holding pressure and then just manipulating the release. A lot of times, if you watch yourself, if you film yourself and use slow motion on your iPhone, from behind if you start to see your hand come out into the right of your face just like that video I posted of myself with that slow motion shot at the bear you'll see my hand is coming out and away from my face I'm literally watching that arrow fly and you can see the arrow slowly start to taper off to the right uh, that was a post that I made um, I don't know, about a week or so ago, and it's the 31st of May, last day of May right now. It's pretty good. Um, so, yeah, that's that. Uh, let's see here. Next question is, uh, next question, are brass inserts still worth it if your bow is shooting regular axis arrows slightly under 300 feet per second listen brass is good for increasing foc and and boosting the overall weight of the arrow if you like that 300 mark and you're happy with your accuracy then you know and you're happy with your overall weight then it might not be anything you need to change i just know that for me i really like having that extra foc with the brass and i realize um that with the brass and that extra front of center weight i'm actually able to shoot different types of fixed blade broadheads and they still fly accurately um so th that's why i like it um 
you know, I feel like it does a lot because um, a lot of these arrows out there with these super light inserts, especially people that are wanting to shoot a hundred grain head, which I'm an advocate of hundred grain heads because they're they're aerodynamically superior. Um, I think for the most part, there's a few 125s that are the same as a hundred. Um, for example. Um, I know Iron Will is making a 125 now that's a solid blade design. So from what I can see, um, they've pretty much closed off the open blades, uh, which was on their 100, and they closed them off, so it added the weight, which is probably what brought it to the 125. The overall head looks very similar from what I can tell, so it's probably not going to fly any different because the surface area overall will be the same it'll just won't have gaps in the blade cutouts which will actually help a lot with noise um so you know if you're not factoring in that 100 versus 125 for the most part most 100 grain heads just do have more compact designs and um which i like but you do want to have that extra weight up in the front so I guess you don't really know until you've tried. Um, what you can do is you can screw a heavier field point. You can buy heavier field points uh, for pretty cheap just to screw on the front um, and you can get pretty close to see the difference between your standard insert with your 100 grain point versus what a brass insert would be with your 100 grain point. And you can see how they shoot and you know if you feel like that little bit of speed loss is worth worth the gain worth th the gain in accuracy then obviously you can see why that's what I'm wanting to have standard uh, as an availability on these shafts uh, let's see here Reynolds 67 saying currently shooting 9.6 grains per inch arrow at 31 inches um, currently shooting at a 31 inch draw um, are these arrows adequate for whitetail hunting? Granted, I shoot 125 grain head, um, or should I switch to a FMJ when season rolls around? Well, let's see. I got to do this math quick. 9.6 times 31 is 297 plus 100 grain head is 397 plus, let's just say, 30 grain, 30, 40, let's say 40 grains for Knox inserts. Uh, yeah, so you're you're roughly at a 440 arrow. You're, I always say an arrow that's over 420 is starting to get okay. Obviously, if you get into some bigger game, um, having that heavier arrow is gonna gonna definitely help you. Um, so. Uh, let's see, I added a 100 grain head. You have a 125 grain head. Um, yeah, I mean, my arrows are always uh, over the 500 mark. Um, just like with the last guy that said he's shooting around 300 feet per second. Personally, I like to shoot in the 280s. Uh, I just, I always try to keep my arrow going about 285, and I just keep increasing arrow weight as bow speeds increase. Uh, and keep my arrows going about 285. I just really like that number for speed. Um, 
but you're you're definitely within tolerance i mean that's a decent arrow for whitetails um for sure so i mean i'm not saying what you have is is not good um even an axis like the axis that i have are 10.7 grains per inch so if you switch just to the axis you could actually switch to the axis and then put a 50 grain brass insert in the front and shoot 100 grain heads and you're going to be further ahead um, than where you're at right now and see these are all part of the reasons why i kind of selected the shafts that i did um, fmjs and axis like i think um Joe told me he's wanting to actually try out on his on his black mamba build um, or no I think he's actually getting another he's gonna get another um, RX one he wanted an RX one in uh, the Sitka pattern and I think he's gonna get another 80 pounder we're gonna see how that comes in but he was talking about trying um, the axis because he's actually gonna move up to a hundred and 25 grain head that he's got um or he wants to try so i told him well he's actually on the bubble between a 100 grain head and a 125 he's on the bubble um, of a 300 versus a 260 spine simply because he's shooting so much weight so i told him you know let's let's try going to that 260 spine with that heavier poundage pull um and then loading some brass in the front of it as well and i mean that thing is going to be a freaking heavy hitter so there's options it's all it's like a teeter-totter i can talk about it all day but in the end it's kind of it's kind of give and take all the way around um let's see <laughs> this uh, uh let's see justin Justin Oriani tattoos. He's uh he's calling me out here. He must be a coffee connoisseur. And he says he says uh Bro, you know you can't be a coffee aficionado and you can't be using that tea kettle bitch. <laughs> You gotta spend at least 150 for a real pour over. All right, I'm gonna have to do that. I like my tea kettle though. Remember, my wife's English, so uh, that's kind of her deal. All right, so I'm getting close here. Getting close. Good grief! This is like a Rogan podcast. My coffee's cold, even in my Yeti mug right now, mainly because I don't have a lid on it. I figure the lid. I play with the Magna Slide. And then it gets annoying to all you listening, so that's why I don't do it. Mm. Okay. Pomatoni saying, I've got a nerve or something pinched off in my back slash shoulder. The la- last time this happened, I think it was from a tricep press. Um, do you have any ideas how to unpinch? Um, God, I actually don't. Um but that's something I can ask uh, Corey about. Um, it is one thing I'll tell you. I normally, when I get like nerve pinches or like nerve problems in relation to my shoulders, it has a lot to do with how I sleep. Um, I really struggled 
learning how to sleep on my back and I'm finally getting around to it. But honestly, I'm just, when you sleep on your shoulders, the amount of like nerve pinch and stuff that you feel as an archer is dramatically more. Um, there's two things that I did. One, I recognized that my mattress is not being friendly to me. Um, so I actually talked to my buddy, Andy Stumpf, and he recommended a Tempur-Pedic mattress. So I'm going to try one of those um, so that my freaking, so I don't keep getting tempted to roll onto my side and make my shoulders fall asleep and my arms go dead at night. Sleeping on your back really, really helps with that um, for sure. Let's see here. Chevy Medic 15. Uh, let's see here. Um, well, he's just saying thanks for everything that I do and uh, respect for my post yesterday about fire department. Yeah, I gave my first Traeger uh, Pro Series to our fire department yesterday um, simply because we got a Timberline. We got the new Timberline, and it just got to the point where once I got that, it's been like nine months now. Um, well, actually, I, this is the this is the sad truth to it. So, I actually got the Timberline when the Timberline came out. Then, when Traeger asked me to do their info commercial, we went and did their info commercial, and I used that new Renegade Pro, which is what you see on TV. And when it was all said and done, I said, what are you guys doing? I drove to the location. I said, what are you guys doing with that grill? And they said, well, nothing because it's dented in the back. And they had to film all the stuff because it had a dent in the back and they didn't want to show the dent. So I'm like, well, can I take it? And they said, yeah. So I've actually been cooking on the dang Renegade Pro, which you can buy on TV. Um at a lot less price than the Timberline. So because I kind of have my Timberline, which I like because of the Wi-Fi, if I'm hunting, I can actually cook from my tree stand. Um, but I'm using the Renegade Pro way more because I'm only cooking for me and Sharon now that Harry's been in college. So I don't need to cook on the bigger grill. I use a lot less pellets on the smaller one. Um, so anyway, I had this original Pro Series one that was in my backyard, and I decided I saw the fire department cooking on some some junky little grill, and I thought, man, they need this thing. Because I used to be a volunteer firefighter when I lived in Wisconsin, and um, I know that they would appreciate it. A lot of my good friends are firefighters. My buddy Troy Blackall down in Louisville, Texas is a fire master uh bill pellegrino also a fire master uh so yeah i wanted to give back and hopefully they put it to good use uh so thanks chevy medic 15 appreciate the uh appreciate the kind words sir okay we got three left people three three that's it three left uh so Jay Ratliff, Ratliff, 157, says, um, 
I've been listening to older podcasts. Am I missing something new, something with the new website? So, yeah. Okay, if you're just now joining in, an earlier podcast, I talked a lot about the new website platform. It never happened. Uh, it got to be a very sore subject. We planned a launch. Things weren't ready. Um, originally, we did a beta launch, and the beta launch was actually nothing. Uh, it wasn't worth me putting it out there because it really was not complete. Um, so went through some headaches there. Um, actually ended up the way it was was not functioning the way that we needed. We ran into problems um, when we were we had three people here loading content um, all through last summer as well as um, running like literally clicking pretending they were you clicking sliding moving adding putting things in the cart blah 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 and there were just continually things that were missing gaps and weren't happening so in the end i just said screw it you know we're just i'm not going to do this so i actually hired a new developer um and pretty much talked about all the holes that i had in the other one um, started back from ground zero and I think we have a pretty a pretty dang good thing I've got two people right now um, Bailey Smith is one of them um, who I've had plinking around in there and she likes it so main thing is getting this thing figured out um, to where we can switch over a big part of the problem is we've been so behind with the store and things like that that um, it just is not taking priority. Uh, so I will tell you this. My plan, for those of you listening, if I launch the new website, I've decided that I'm going to launch this website um, on a free platform. So because of all the crap, I'm not going to charge for different levels. The reality is I'm just going to open this thing up. It's been a nightmare. So everything that I've paid uh, for this is just going to be... Um, another free platform for you um, if I decide to do personal coaching through that or with that that will be at a charge or if I offer um, private videos for say if I decide to do videos that are unpublished um, for example like hunting episodes or product reviews of non-sponsored products uh, for example, if I want to do product reviews on PSE bows or Matthews bows, that's not going to be something I do for free. Um, so it, you know, there may there may be a membership level, but it's going to more or less just be something that's part of our community. Um, all right. So last question: HMC dot knives. It's also known, known as Jim. One of those two names he'll answer. He'll answer by HMC. He'll answer to Jim. Or he'll also answer to codename Redbeard. Uh, either one of those. If you want a bitch and knife, he'll make you one for you. So let's see what his question is. When your arrows are released... If I switch to the brass insert with the axis set up and am able to match the arrow weight to my current FMJ setup by spining down, will I need to resight in my setup? So 
literally, if you build an arrow that is comparative in weight, then ballistically, it's going to be the same. So does your FOC affect your arrow flight or momentum at impact? Like, so you're not, if you have an arrow that has a little more FOC, um, your pin gaps are still going to be the same. Uh, so yeah, you don't have to worry about that. You're more likely to have if you change your fletchings or if you change your fletching or your fletch angle or something like that um, you're more likely to have a change but uh, yeah your overall weight should be pretty darn good so <sighs> dudes I think we did it it's two hours, 27 minutes, and 30 seconds, 31, 32, 33. It's counting down. Oh, that was good. I appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Um, again, this, this podcast is brought to you by you because every time you buy something that's knock on, you're supporting the cause, and that's why I'm doing what I'm doing for free because we have a cool community. We're a cool little group of men, women, kids, uh, and however else you identify. That's what we are. I'm an archer and a, and a man. That's how, that's what I go with. So you're awesome. Appreciate the heck out of all of you. I'm pretty pumped. I got to go get practicing. It's now, uh, ooh, dang, it's almost 7 o'clock. It's light outside and everything. So I got to get after it. I got my buddy Tim Kitts coming to hang out with me today. So I got to go get after it. What's my day like? My day is like podcast, three hours. Then I got to get a hot cup of coffee. I got to get my workout in. I got to go have breakfast with my local game warden uh, because... Here's what's cool. My game warden is actually going to be doing my food plot mowing. Can you believe it? Yep. He knows I'm going to be coaching uh, in Europe. And he told me he'd help me out. So that's cool. Uh, you guys are all awesome. Appreciate the freaking heck out of you. And uh, knock on everybody. Oh, by the way, for those of you who didn't just turn it off because you knew there was a commercial coming, you might want to be checking your emails this morning. If you've signed up for email notification for something green, you better act fast. If you didn't turn off too early, you just got the inside scoop. Peace out. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com